0: I wanna to talk to you this morning about sort of the passion, the privilege, and the pain of being a leader. We don't often think of it. We think of the privileges leaders get. Yes, sometimes they get the security, they get into, put into a car securely and safely, they may be put at the head table, and all those things. That does happen. I'm not sure it happened to our Lord or to Paul, but in our time, our culture does these very nice things. But very few of us realize the pain that often goes into being a leader, the lonely hours that you have to spend, the aloneness of not knowing where to turn when your heart is breaking. It's a reality. I have not been ever in political leadership and I hope I never will be. My father was quite well placed in the Indian government. But I often remember the struggles he would face when decision moments came. He also was involved in mediating disputes. He was a chief industrial relations officer for the government of India and many of their government held entities. And I'd be walking past the room when my dad would be mediating. And the anguish, the anger, the displeasure. And I often wondered how my dad did it. Oftentimes they would see my father somebody coming and helping him with his briefcase or something. somebody willing to take his car and find a parking spot. That is all very nice, but they don't ever know all that my father had to go through in private and the struggle of seeking for wisdom. And so as I talk to you this morning, I'm going to talk to you on a leader who was never anticipating to lead the way he did He did not hold a master's in theology. He was not a prophet. He was not a priest. He was actually a civil engineer. The man I'm talking to you about is Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a civil engineer, and he was one who was in a foreign palace, but he had an amazing character. The reason I know it was amazing is that he was the cupbearer to the king. Imagine. The king has taken a group of people into exile, and he wants somebody whom he can trust implicitly, whose yea will be yea, whose nay will be nay, and who will not be a betrayer of the monarch. Who did he find? He found a man called Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, which means he was the one who tasted the food before it'd be placed before the king. That's the kind of character he had, though an exile totally trusted by this foreign monarch. And while he's in this great position of power, which often happened with the Israelites, you see Joseph in that situation, Daniel in that situation, Moses in that situation. Now you've got Nehemiah, and it's taking place around the mid 400s before Christ. They'd been taken into captivity in three waves. They were returned from captivity in three waves. And one day while he is minding his own business, he is told that his brother from the city of Jerusalem has come to visit him. And so his first question to his brother is a very straightforward one. His question is, how are the people doing and how is it in the city of Jerusalem? Jerusalem was really that beloved city for these people. He said, how's it going? And the brother said, you're not going to be happy you asked. The gates are burned. The walls are destroyed. They are marauded. They are assaulted. They are plundered. The people are in despair, Nehemiah. It's not a good story. That happened around the month of December in a particular year. Five months later, this conversation takes place in Nehemiah chapter two. In the month of Nisan in the 20th century of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why shouldn't I face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins, its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Do you notice that? The king's asked him a question, but he's talking to the king of kings first. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the city and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take you and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me so I set a time. W.F. Aidney, in his commentary on Nehemiah and his writing about this situation says this about Jerusalem. No city was ever more favored by heaven and no city was ever more afflicted. Hers were the most magnificent endowments, the highest ideals, the fairest promises, Her stew was the most miserable failure. Her beauty ravaged, her sanctity defiled, her light extinguished, her joy turned to bitterness. Heaven's bride had been treated as the scum of the streets. And now after being abused by her own children, shattered by the Babylonians, outraged by the Syrians, demolished by the Romans, the city which stoned her prophets and clamored successfully for the death of her savior has again Revived, The witchery of this wonderful city fascinates us even today. And the very syllables of her name, Jerusalem, sound strangely sweet and ineffably sad, most musical, most melancholic. The city of Jerusalem, Zechariah said, whoever tries to hold it will stagger and tremble under its weight. It's a beloved city. It goes back across several millennia. I remember walking on the streets of Jerusalem some years ago. I'd done that many times and of all people, it was a Palestinian gentleman who was the director of the Bible Society who was walking beside me and he said to me, you'll never know what it does to my heart to visit here from a man, Jordan, and come and walk through the streets. There's something about the city. That is so bewitching, he said, and it holds the highest esteem in my heart. And yet it's been ravaged, plundered. The people in in Judah thought it would never be taken over. Yes, the northern city had fallen in 722. But Jeremiah came and said to the south, do not say unto yourselves, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you don't believe what God is going to do here, go to Shiloh and see what he did there because it was at Shiloh that he placed his his name at first. Now it was Jerusalem's turn and Jerusalem had fallen. And that's why as it had been plundered, Nehemiah is never able to get Jerusalem out of his mind. Oh, he is living in luxury. He's living in trust. He's living with all these privileges, but he is called to be a leader. He's called to lead his people back. And it's a struggle when you're called. You battle it out. You wrestle it out. You ask yourself, do I really know what this is going to cost me. I'll never forget talking to Cliff Barrows one day. Years ago, Cliff is now with the Lord, as is the man he served alongside Billy Graham. And Cliff said to me when he was at Wheaton College, how Billy came to him one night and Cliff was headed in his own ministry, going to work with Youth for Christ. When Billy asked him if he would consider being his song leader and standing alongside him because God had called him, to become an evangelist and to preach to the masses of this world. And Cliff said, I wrestled all night in prayer. It was a very hard decision to give up my own desires and follow my calling, the calling to stand beside a man whom I believe God had put his hand upon. So you've got both the leader and the people who support the leader who walk that lonely path and sometimes have to face many a lonely hour. But how is it that this all comes into play? What goes into the converging of your heart when you're either leading and you're the point of the arrow or you're standing beside a leader and help him carry him or her into some very difficult terrain? I've celebrated 46 years in ministry. There's one question I cannot honestly answer when people say to me, if you had known then what you know now, would you have still gone in this direction? I cannot answer that because God spares you the complete cost. He gives you the strength of the moment and he grows you in the process to be able to carry that. If all of us could see the entire cost beforehand, there'd be many other places that we would rather be and rather choose to be. But a leader's door in many ways is not locked on the inside. It's locked on the outside. It's locked by God who calls you and strengthens you And positions you. And I watch the life of this man. Who is an engineer. You see we often think. That preaching is a sacred calling. Wherever you are called to be. Is a sacred calling. There is no such thing. As secular for the believer. There is only profane. Or the sacred. You are either in a sacred call. Or a profane calling. And profane literally means. To lock the temple out of your life. To take God out of your life. If you're an engineer, if you're a nurse, if you're a bookkeeper, you're an accountant, you're an attorney, whatever you're called to do, you are there because you're called to serve God and do it to the best of your ability because you will be a light in that setting. And so how does Nehemiah face this? Here he is in the palace And his brother has given him this news, and five months go by, he's not able to shake it off till the king confronts him and says, What's going on? You don't look happy? Are you unwell? And he says, No, I'm not unwell. The city of my father's lies in ruins. How can I really be happy here in exile? It's an amazing thing to tell the king that of a foreign land. And so he says, Nehemiah, what are you asking for? He says I want to go and build that city again. I want to build its walls. I want to protect the people. I want to build its gates. And the king, rather than saying, why do you want to do that when you're all well settled here? The king says, how long do you want? He said, I set him a time. And the king allowed him to go. But not only did he do that, he asked the king to help pay the bills to go and build the wall of Jerusalem and the gates as well. This is quite an amazing story. So what's the first thing you do? He feels the pathos, the pain for his people. He feels the anguish for his people. You know, we use the word passion in a very interesting way today. We talk about a passionate scene in the movies, which really means you ought not to be there. (laughs) Or we talk about the passion, what is your passion? Do you know the ancient Latin in the word passion literally meant suffering? So when Bach does his the passion, St. Matthew's passion, he's writing of the suffering of Christ. All of his scriptures were taken from the pain and the suffering of Christ. And so here also when you see Handel's Messiah, you talk about the passion section of Handel's Messiah. We feel the pain, the suffering, the agony of it all. And so as he feels the pain of his people, as he feels the suffering of his people, he transplants uh, transplants that pain into his own heart. And he realizes at that point to go and build a wall, to go and build the gates, to go and rescue the city, he was going to have to enter into a lot of suffering himself. Our Lord was called, set his flint with a purpose. He looked at his mother and said, my time has not yet come. Don't you know for this very purpose I have come into the world? When he talked about heading to the cross. And yet when the moment of the cross came, the shame, the desolation, the separation from within the very uh, intricate relationship of the Holy Trinity... And he cries out to his father and says, is there any other way to do this? Is there any other way? But I don't want my will. I want yours. Because he knew he was entering into the most painful moments and days of what he was called to do. You will never, you will never lighten any load until you feel the pressure in your own soul. You will never lighten any load until you feel the pressure in your own soul. You will never ever help to rebuild or to build unless you feel that discontent and the pain of the cause to which you have been called. There is a cause in our time. There are numerous causes in our time. The most important cause that I see it is the moral desperation in which we now live in our countries. You know, uh, it was Dickens in his book, The Tale of Two Cities, that wrote the most popular first line of any book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Very rarely do you remember the first line of a book. But Tale of Two Cities, you do remember it because it hits you as soon as you read it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. If Dickens could say that, writing in the late 1700s about all that was going on in France, wonder what he would say about our time now. Just pick up the newspapers and read it. Get into the news and look at what's happening. The agonies of our cultures, the pain of people, the millions of refugees, the homeless the deserted, the struggling, and the moral breakdown of our society where we have for years and years and years trained our students in universities to tell them that there were no absolutes, that relativism reigned supreme. They go out and become actors or actresses or lawyers or politicians and they live with the relativistic worldview and then their names come on the front page of the paper to criticize them for living by the philosophy which was given to them in the first place. How can you be a relativist? Relative to what? To whom? You know, this woman is sitting on a plane and terrified because it had hit turbulence. You know, there's one thing about a plane. I think uh, there'll always be prayers on planes. (laughs) Always, especially if you hit turbulence. So this woman started to panic and scream and the pilot had to leave his cockpit and let the co-pilot and he came and looked at her and he said, Madam, I want to tell you something we're okay, look out the left side of this window, do you see a flashing light? She said, yes, he said, look out the right side, do you see a flashing light? She said, yes, he said, as long as you can see those two flashing lights, we are safe. (laughs) Of course, because that's the plane. (laughs) It's the plane flashing those lights, it's self-reflecting. And so if you can see that light and you can't see that light, you're okay. The problem is if you can't see those lights because you can't do a thing. You're finished. You can't even panic. You're done. That's what relativism is all about. Self-referencing, self-defining. C.S. Lewis says, when a ship goes into the high seas, it has to answer three questions. Number one, how to keep from sinking. Personal ethics. Number two, how to keep from bumping into other ships, social ethics. But the most important question it has to answer is, why is it out there in the first place? (laughs) What is your very purpose for life? Why are you out there? You cannot determine personal ethics or social social ethics until you have the definition of essentially who you are. And so I say to you, when you're called to build this society... You have to be able to answer the question as to who you are and why you are. Who are you? Why are you here in the first place? If that question is not answered, you will never be able to answer any ethical questions whatsoever. Feel a passion and the pain for this society. The church is needed more than ever. The light of the gospel is needed more than ever. Our families are needed more than ever. Men and women of conviction more than ever who know what's right and what's wrong and know how to walk in the path to which God has called them. Are you aware of those rights and wrongs? You know, many years ago, I don't have the exact date, but George Will told the story of a woman here in New York City, I won't go into the details something very tragic happened in her life and it stunned the New Yorkers. In his book, The Pursuit of Happiness, one of his essays tells the story. She hit tragedy in her life, terrible tragedy for her family. And next day, politicians were asking each other, how can so much go wrong in one person's life and nobody be alerted to it? How can so much go wrong in one person's life and nobody be alerted to it? I remember Daniel Patrick Moynihan had some comments and others had comments. One city councilman made this comment. He said, do you know what you are asking when you ask me that question? How can so much go wrong in one person's life and nobody be alerted to it? he said, if you want me to hear the cry and the heartbeat of every person in my community, you may as well ask me to listen to the sound of every blade of grass growing and the heartbeat of every squirrel. The noise would be deafening on the other side of silence. You may as well ask me to listen to the sound of every blade of grass growing and the heartbeat of every squirrel. The noise would be deafening on the other side of silence. There's so much of pain out there so much of suffering out there. Is there any one human being who can bear it all? The answer is no. There's only one place in the world where there's an aggregate for human suffering, and that is in the heart of God. God is able to carry that. But here's the point I want to make. God takes that aggregate suffering that he bears and he distributes portion sizes bearable sizes to each individual so that you and I can carry the portion which he has assigned to us. Have you ever asked him what your portion is? What do you want me to bear? What is the struggle and pain you ask me to bear? What is the burden you want me to fulfill? It is a fascinating thing to me that Nehemiah Asked God to show him. And God said, you're an engineer. I need that wall built. I need those gates established. I need the city rebuilt. Will you go? And so here's what he does. The first thing he does is prioritize his mission by prayer. That's an amazing thing. 11 times in 13 chapters in this tiny little book, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I prayed to the God of heaven. I prayed to the God of heaven. His initial response with any catastrophic news was to talk to the Lord and get God's wisdom. Prayer is that incredible privilege we are given to come and unburden our hearts because we cannot carry the burden and God then cradles that burden for us and gives us the new strength for a new day to carry that burden for him because he called us into that position. It is so fascinating my, my colleague, Sanj, who's with me, has been an amazing friend over the years. We cover the globe together. And no matter where we go, we bump into people by either about to get into an elevator or we are sitting at a table or we're in a restaurant or on a plane and somebody comes and asks you for a few moments that they wanna to talk to you. You almost suddenly know what it's going to be. It's going to be about some kind of a burden that they are carrying. And he has been just, he was in business before joined me in the last couple of years. And he said, man, there are a lot of hurting people out there. Man, there are a lot of hurting people out there. So you always meet it with prayer because three things happen in prayer. I want to point them out to you. You know, when our vice president talked about talking to God and hearing from God, an entertainer, of course, had a heyday with it once again. And what did she have to say? There's such cruelty in the entertainment world today. And the more they mock, they actually show how juvenile their soul is. You don't mock the sacred. You don't mock the sacred. When you arrive in Bangkok, Thailand, there's a big billboard that you're not allowed to make any jokes on Buddha. You cannot even use his image as an ornament. I'm not a Buddhist but I respect a culture that asks me to honor what they revere as sacred and I treat that as sacred. And so our entertainments thrive on profanity. So they make mockery of a person who says he prays and he hears from the Lord. So I can only assume when they make fun of somebody who says he hears from the Lord, that they must think the Bible is a mockery of of us too. Because that's the word of the Lord. Greatest guidance is received not from inner voices. Greatest guidance is received from being in his word. And so when you get on your knees before God, the first thing you're acknowledging is that the Lord is sovereign. That's the first thing you acknowledge when you get on your knees. Holy Father, Heavenly Father, Almighty God, you're recognizing that you're not completely sovereign over your life, that he is sovereign over you. The the second thing... The second thing in prayer is you see your own heart because the first thing you do after you call him in the name of the heavenly father or holy God, however you address him, is to confess your sin to recognize that you are not qualified to even come before him. We're not worthy to be coming before you. You recognize God is sovereign. You recognize you're fallen and feeble and frail. But the third thing that happens in prayer that is so foreign to many of them is this amazing thing. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer, makes this comment in a poem. They tell me, Lord, that when I pray, only one voice is heard, that I am dreaming you are not there, that this whole thing is absurd. They tell me, Lord, that when I pray, only one voice is heard, that I'm dreaming you're really not there. This whole thing is absurd. Maybe they're right, Lord. Maybe they're right, that only one, one voice is heard, But if it is only one voice, it's not mine, it's yours. I'm not dreaming. You are the dreamer and I am your dream. You are the dreamer, Lord, and I am your dream. God makes you his dream as you kneel before him and as you humbly bow before him. What Nehemiah was looking for was his heavenly father to shape him conditioned his back to be able to carry the burden that he was going to carry because you see he who prepares the burden for your back is the same one who shapes your back for the burden Amen. he helps you to carry it so the first thing he does is ponders he prioritizes the mission by prayer second thirdly the first he feels the pathos for his people prioritized his mission by prayer thirdly he pondered in proximity he pondered in proximity. He went close. That's when you're really alone. That's when you're really alone. You walk into the situation where you know this is where you are called. So imagine he goes, goes mounts on his donkey. He goes in the darkness and starts looking at the walls and he's going to say, how am I going to do this? gates are burned the wall is destroyed I've told him I'm going to come back in a few days how am I going to do this it's fascinating that he blocked everybody else from going with him he went in there alone and he wanted God to speak to him you will never be a great leader of people until you are willing to face the challenge alone and let God speak to you on what this challenge is all about You know, we we stand before all kinds of university audiences. Some of them can be quite hostile. I remember one person at one university saying to me, can you tell me how I know that I exist? I suppose he pays his fees. I suppose he walked through the door. I suppose he did all kinds of other things, but he wanted me to explain to him how he knew that he actually existed. And I said, Professor Nathan at one of the famous universities had a question in his class on philosophy from a questioner who said to him, sir, how do I know that I exist? And Professor Nathan just looked at him and said, and who, shall I say, is asking? (laughs) Can you really deny yourself without affirming yourself at the same time? You know, how do I know that I exist? Fascinating, isn't it? Dogs don't question the meaning of dogginess. <laughs> Cats don't ask the meaning of catishness. We're the only ones supposed to be the smartest of the bunch, and we really don't know what it means to be human, and we even wonder if we actually exist. I want to challenge you it's tough out there. You have to get alone. You have to go in front of wherever it is God has called you to be and do it recognizing he will burden your heart to be able to do things the certain way that he wants it done. David Livingston, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. Sever any ties but the ties that bind me to your service and to your heart. He said, through it all the words of Christ came to me, lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. After he lost his wife, by her grave he knelt and said, My Jesus, my King, my life, my all, I again consecrate myself to thee. I shall place no value in anything I do or anything I possess, except in relation to thy kingdom and to thy service. He said, Through it all the words of Christ came to me, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. We don't pray prayers like that anymore because we're so fearful of what our Heavenly Father would do with a prayer like that. But you will never be a totally fulfilled person until you know not only does he call you, he is with you always to the end of the age as well. He prioritized his mission by prayer. He pondered in proximity. Fourthly, he avoided the paralysis of pessimism. It's very easy to look around and say it's never going to happen. It's not going to happen. Never going to happen. And yet, can you imagine Saul of Tarsus becoming Paul and going to Caesar's palace and going to Rome and say, "What am I going to do with these bunch of heathens?" Rome, city that wasn't built in a day, the Caesars. How am I going to change this, And you've called me to be to, be a missionary to the Gentiles. That diminutive man with a thorn in his flesh that God would not take away, wanted to go to Rome, and through his preaching, the whole of the Western world was changed. The disciples never knew, on the day that he was lowered over that wall in Damascus, in a basket, who was in that basket. They did not know the man in that basket was going to write one third of the New Testament. You never know what God is going to be able to accomplish. You never know what it is he's going to be able to do. You know, I had, uh, there was a promise I'd made, but uh, it was not an absolute promise. There was a gentleman I knew was a missionary to India. Uh, His funeral was this weekend and I couldn't be there. He'd asked me if I would be able to preach at his funeral months ago before he died. I said, John, I will do it. I don't have to cancel anything for people who've been waiting a long time and I couldn't do it, but I'd also told them who the backup would be for me and my brother-in-law, Sundar Krishnan, went and preached in Calgary over this weekend at the funeral. But I owed that man a huge debt. When I was 17 years old and I tried to take my own life, a Bible was brought to me by my bed at my bed that led me to Christ. It was this man that sent the Bible for me to be had to have that Bible read to me. So I just felt without him, I would never really have made it in life. And he knew that. And he said to me, you're a man who is so busy traveling, I would never want to take it away from any other people to whom you're committed. But if you're free and can make it, I hope you will come. We'll see him in heaven. But all I say to you at this point is that he could have seen me on a bed of suicide and been totally pessimistic about me. Nothing's going to happen with this guy. He's a 17 year old Indian. I come from Canada. He's lying on a hospital bed. He doesn't want to live. Nothing is going to happen. And yet he calls an Indian worker in Youth for Christ so take this young man a Bible. Never realizing what God was going to do with that life and how God was going to change that affection. When God calls you and asks you to do something and to obey him, you have no idea of what the future is. So avoid the paralysis of pessimism. And just one more before my final thought, there is always a process of preparation. You start off with a pathos for your people, you move with the priority of prayer, you ponder in proximity, you avoid the paralysis of pessimism, but there is a process of preparation. You have to prepare for what God is calling you to do. And to prepare in ministry today is getting harder and harder and harder. We have a team of 70 speakers in our organization, full-time, scattered across the globe. And every, to every one of them, I say to them, you've got your studies so far. You've got your bachelor's. And then I think you should take a master's, too. You've got a master's. I think you should do a doctorate, too. Because there's a graduate-level skepticism out there. And we encourage them to work hard and to study. One of my dear friends, John Jiroge, he's from Kenya. John came to me many years ago. He was a student at uh, one of the universities in Pennsylvania studying medicine. And he said to me, you know what? I, I, I listen to you on the radio. And my people in Kenya, this is what they need and I'm willing to step aside from my studies in medicine because I think we need to reach our people with their souls, to reach them with the gospel. But I'm not formally trained. I want to join your team. Can we do something? And he sat down I said, John, if you've not got any theological training, you need to go and study. He said, where would you go? So I recommended that he go to Biola in in California because he wanted to do philosophy and apologetics. And he went and he, I didn't even know he would take me. Seriously, he goes there and three years later he comes knocking on the door again. He says, I got my master's, now what do I do? I said, John, you're such a bright guy. You really want to go back to Kenya? He said, yes. I said, we'll help you. Go and do your doctorate. Get the best education you can. Reach the professors there. Reach the intellectuals there. And his eyes widened like that. Next week, he will be getting his PhD from the University of Georgia. He defended the transcendent basis of ethics, that the ethics can only be based and anchored in God, not in a horizontal axis. And four atheist professors tested him on it, and one of them said, you've really got me thinking. You've really got me thinking. How amazing. And he's lifted his family lock, stock, and barrel. He's on the outskirts of Nairobi. There's a process of preparation. Do you know what happens when you're preparing? It's not the degree that I want you to focus on. When you are preparing, God actually speaks to you in ways of narrowing the focus of what it is he wants you to do you cannot you can be too broad and in your studies in your preparation he narrows that focus so if you're part of a bible study group here if you come to a weekly study if you're about to get married and take that those seminars on marriage god will narrow down those truths for you to make it very specific to what it is you actually need there's a process of preparation and what happens as a result of this all he brings peace for his people you know? have you ever seen such misguided advice as in our time? Find happiness. There's a guy on YouTube with his one-liners, bright-eyed, a dentist's dream with a set of teeth. <laughs> and he looks into that and he says, why worry? Why worry? Have you got anything to worry about? No? Then why worry? Have you got anything to worry about? Yes. Can you do anything about it? Yes, then why worry? If you can't do anything about it, then why worry? So he's gone through all the possibilities. Have you got anything to worry about? No, then why worry? You have something to worry about? Yes. Can you do anything about it? Yes, then go and do it. You can't do anything about it? No, then why worry? People pay thousands of dollars to listen to these one-liners. The unreality of people who actually abuse the intellect of their audiences, if you 've got a baby in your home that 's dying of cancer, what does that what what does what I say to you just make a difference? Why worry? The world is real now is my heart exceedingly troubled, says the Lord in this world, you shall have much tribulation, but I have overcome the world. There are reasons to be to have a heartache, to have that. But he has overcome the world, and he gives you his strength. You do not pursue happiness. Happiness is a byproduct. You do not pursue peace. Peace is a byproduct. You follow him, and happiness will follow you. The rabbis put it this way. God is like the light. Peace and prosperity are like the shadow. If you follow the light, your shadow will follow you. You turn your back upon the light and chase the shadows, you will never catch up to it. So turn your eyes towards Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Follow him. Nehemiah did an amazing thing. He built the wall, but he didn't do it alone. If you read the chapter, you'll see what he did. He went to every family and said to them, build the portion of the wall in front of your own home, and when all of you finish it, the wall will join together. You have a responsibility to build that portion in front of your own home. When you do this, we will build the whole wall and build the city back to our safety and our security. Leaders can never build a wall by themselves. They need the families to come alongside and build the walls and build their homes. Ladies and gentlemen, you have a responsibility before God. You have a portion to build. You have a portion to construct. I understand this building is over 100 years old. How amazing. If these bricks and mortar and walls could talk, what would they say? One of the best things I think they would say is that some of the greatest music ever sung were sung within these walls. Some of the finest sermons ever preached, this one being an exception to that, were preached out here. It's amazing what can happen in a structure like this. Learn to build your life, and your families, and give your leaders the assistance they need, especially in the lonely hours when they are battling things alone. Without you, they cannot make it. The scriptures tell us we are all part of one body. When one limb hurts, the rest of the body hurts. And so let's stand together, make a difference in this world, and change the reality of our time. And as we follow him, peace and blessing. And happiness will follow us. And we will make a difference in the world out there. May God richly bless you. And thank you for giving me a hearing. Yeah, God bless you.